Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to The Daily Break. I'm Andrew Tallman. Here's what's happening today at Newsweek. So the interesting thing about scientific breakthroughs is that to the person making the breakthrough, they see all of the optimism, all of the possibility, the where can it go right and what can this do for humankind kind of perspective. And from the other perspective, which is the critic's perspective, this looks like the stuff of horrible ethics violations and the beginning of some terrible dystopian future as depicted in many books and movies that try to warn you about this stuff. That's kind of where we're at with this first story. British scientists at Cambridge University have used a combination of stem cells from mice and they have manufactured in the laboratory a fully functioning embryo without using any actual eggs or sperm. That's right, they created a mouse out of mouse parts. And I don't just mean that they cloned a mouse, I mean they fabricated a mouse embryo and they grew it for eight and a half days in the lab. 20 days is full term. This synthesized mouse embryo had a brain, had a beating heart, had all of the foundational pieces for the body's full complete organs, including neural and gut tubes that protect the spine and the intestines. They made something out of parts and grew it to about 40% full gestation of a mouse. And in the process of doing this, they were able to discover all kinds of things about how the embryos form, how the embryos communicate early on with the other cells that are going to form the placenta or the egg sac. And also by tweaking certain portions of embryonic development, certain genes on and off, they were able to simulate failures of development, like, for example, of the brainstem, meaning that they were able to simulate disorders that might occur from normally occurring mutations, simulate them in the lab, produce the result as a way of seeing how those things might be either identified early or perhaps theoretically even prevented if you could identify them early. Now, again, we're talking about gestational mice here, not implanted in a womb, so they're not going to grow to be full term. And in fact, they haven't been able to get past eight and a half days. But getting to eight and a half days is, again, depending on your perspective, an amazing breakthrough that they've been working on for a decade or a concern note. Let's just say the very mildest term. Because on the upside, you're talking about understanding mammalian development to the point where you could perhaps avoid so many of the reasons that early, early term pregnancies fail or result in defects that are devastating to the young born live. And of course, we're talking here about all mammals, including humans. You're talking about the capacity to grow parts without growing an actual being. So we're talking about donatable kidneys or hearts or lungs or blood or all kinds of things. And you're also talking about the possibility of creating just enough of the life form that you could do medical research and experimentation without having to harm or kill lab animals, for example. So as I say, the upside possibilities here are enormous. Then there are the concerns. And what are those? Well, for one thing, for humans, British law permits human embryos to be studied in the lab only up to the 14th day of development. So even though they're only working with mice at the moment, some of the full-blown applications to people are currently prohibited by British law. Also, the fabrication of synthetic human embryos like this would be if it were people is outside the legal framework of Britain's Human Fertilization and Embryology Act. 
and it would be clearly illegal to use them to establish a pregnancy because they're not permitted embryos under the classification system. But surely the other concerns include things like what would be the moral status of beings created in this way? Created for experimentation, but not fully realized beings of whatever classification they are. Beings created for the donation of parts to other sentient, for example, humans. And if you can fabricate embryos in the lab and you can tweak elements of the DNA in order to produce defects or virtues of the sort that you want, Surely it's not a far distance to cross before you can simply fabricate the kind of human being you want in the lab and then implant it in a womb to grow or perhaps implant it in a synthetic womb to grow at some point. And if all the myriad concerns about master races and eugenics and Brave New World and Gattaca or even the clones from Star Wars don't start to raise your concern level a little bit, well, that's what some of these laws are in place for, and certainly that's what the ethicists have been discussing for decades about such matters, precisely because they figured at some point the science would become available. And now from the Nature's Amazing file, Hawaii's Volcanoes National Park has a resident, a resident that nobody seems to really understand. The lava cricket. That's right, you have a cricket that lives on the hardened lava right next to active volcanoes where lava might be spewing, and nobody understands how it works or why it survives. We have learned that it basically lives off of scraps of decaying plants and sea foam that are blown into its harsh environment by the wind. In other words, like the ocean's equivalent of table scraps blow out of the ocean onto the lava, and this little cricket eats that and survives on it. How is that possible? It's called the wingless lava cricket, rather unimaginatively, or the Kakonomobius fori, known to the people of Hawaii as the Uhini Nene Pele, and it's the first known multicellular life form to make a home in the hardened lava flows that come from recent eruptions. Here's what else is weird. So the eruption happens, and you've got a place where there's limited oxygen, extremely high temperatures, lava spewing nearby, and suddenly these crickets show up, even as early as three months after the eruption. And then over time, what happens is vegetation starts to grow on the hardened lava, and the crickets disappear. Meaning at exactly the time when you would think the crickets would start to thrive on the vegetation that's a lot easier to pick up than, say, the seafoam flecks that come their way. No, they disappear and they go away. And we don't know where they come from. We don't know where they go or how they survive without the... It's a total mystery. Now, the reason this has all been captured on video is because there's a whole series being produced on the national parks and the value that the national park system offers to protecting unique wildlife, seeing how rare flora and fauna flourish, and just creating a place in which they will have their habitats undisturbed by humans enough that they can continue to exist in a world that is a little bit inhospitable to them in ways other than lava flows. Now, all that to me is fascinating, but what I really want to know is... As crickets go, are they louder or less loud than the ones that always seem to camp out underneath my door at night? That's what I want to know. And finally, from the, well, I guess it takes all kinds file, the breadth and scope of things that people have collected or actively collect is as myriad as the number of things there are in the universe. People collect everything from coins and stamps to comic books to first edition books or preserved insects to golf tees or the used clothes of famous people or challenge coins from the military or patches or sand from places they visited all around the world. Almost anything can be the subject of a personal collection. Do you have any hobbies? I collect spores, molds, and fungus. But maybe there are some things which it's not the ideal for people to collect. And if you think about the psychology behind collecting or hoarding, 
Well, it starts to lead you down a very concerning road. Aaron Surtees, a psychologist and founder of City Hypnosis, says that basically when it comes to collecting, people collect to express control over their environment, especially to make up for having felt unsafe or insecure in their childhood and to try to manage that resulting insecurity with things, essentially, that they can point to that they have a lot of. I will say that's a fine theory, but speaking as someone who got an abundance of parental love as a child and still managed to be a semi-hoarder and collect a lot of things, I'm not sure that's always the case. Nevertheless, there are still some things that even the diligent collector is probably going to think are not a good idea. And let me warn you in advance, if you're squeamish, this might not be the story for you. And it's okay, you won't hurt my feelings if you bail out early, but don't blame me later when you wish you hadn't, okay? We take you now to Pennsylvania, where in August, a man was arrested for collecting human body parts on Facebook. Oh, yeah, I would think that's probably a violation of Facebook Marketplace's uh, terms and conditions of service. He was arrested for, you ready? This is kind of nasty. Collecting human brains, a full female pelvis, piece of skin with a nipple on it, four hands, and a child's jawbone with teeth still attached. So, yeah, nasty. But weirdly, not in and of itself necessarily illegal. Buying and selling body parts on the black market is big business, and even though it's unethical because of the source of the body parts, the ownership of and the trading of them itself is weirdly not illegal. 38 states do have laws that are supposed to prevent the sale of human remains, but in reality the laws are vague, confusing, and randomly enforced. So what was the problem in this case? Well, it wasn't the buying or the selling. It was the fact that they were stolen. And it's a felony to receive stolen property and misdemeanor abuse of a corpse. Because the person that he got the parts from was allegedly stealing them from the University of Arkansas mortuary and then reselling them online. 30 new items have been added to your buy and sell groups. According to Debbie Renders, a Belgian collector and trader who runs an Instagram account of almost 4,000 followers, 4,000 followers, says that people outside of our community often see what we do as maybe a little disturbing, but the people who collect and trade are really genuine people, open and lovely, but a bit guarded, especially to journalists. Obviously, throughout history, the collecting and even the trade and sale of human body parts has not been all that rare. Think of scalping as evidence that you've killed a Native American. By the way, that is illegal. Owning a part of a Native American is illegal under federal law for reasons I assume trace back to that sordid history. But you had parts of lynching victims being kept as trophies and even going back to the Bible, the dowry price for Saul's daughter for David was 100 foreskins of Philistines. No word whether Saul ever resold them on Facebook Marketplace or Instagram. Back to this case in Pennsylvania, they discovered several five-gallon buckets full of human remains, including half a head, three brains, a heart, a liver, a lung, two kidneys, and a trachea. Something which 40-year-old Jeremy Pauly, the owner, allegedly spent over $4,000 on. And am I the only one who thinks, weirdly, that's a lot and also not a lot of money for those pieces? I don't think I know what the going rate on a human trachea is, but... It seems like it'd be more. But maybe we have a solution at hand. Going back to the first story, if you have the capacity to grow something that could eventually produce parts, and there's no ethical concerns in the way those parts came to be, maybe the people on the back end who like to collect them can find some kind of satisfaction outside of the realm of owning a piece of somebody that used to be walking around with us. 
That's it for the Daily Break. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for these stories and more, including our growing podcast lineup. And consider subscribing to our digital and print editions of Newsweek if you haven't already. Hit that five-star rating before you go, and I promise to never tell you any stories about human body parts ever again. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek. Newsweek. 